If you were about to die, what advice would you give to your family and friends? Let you contemplate that for a second. If you were about to die, what advice would you give to your family and friends? I remember uh, many years ago when our uh, former uh, bookkeeper, business manager, Jennifer Kilfoyle-Lee, was uh, very sadly dying of brain cancer. The staff, uh, we went uh, to visit her uh, close when it was clear that you know, she was coming close to death. We went and spent time with her, and each one of us spent a little uh, time talking with her. And I was really struck by how to almost each one of us she had some sort of word of counsel or advice. Ostensibly, we were there to show our love for her and to care and minister to her. But she had some bit of wisdom or advice or piece of hope to offer to each one of us. And I will never forget that. And perhaps many of you have had those sort of deathbed experiences of someone who, as they approach death, offers some profound clarity about life or its meaning or some word of counsel to you. The gospel we just heard is the beginning or prelude of what is often called Jesus' farewell discourse his kind of swan song, as it were. Jesus, who knows that he is about to die, although the disciples do not, Jesus has just left the Last Supper, says to his disciples, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. That's it. That's it. Love one another. One commentator said that the commandment Jesus gives to the disciples is so simple that a little child, and note he refers to the disciples as little children, we are to be as little children, the commandment is so simple that even a little child can memorize it and appreciate what it is saying. Love one another yet so deeply profound as to completely embarrass mature adult believers in how difficult it is to practice that commandment. And the commandment Jesus gives us is about practice. It is about actions. It is not about belief. As Karen Armstrong said, religion is not primarily about what we believe, but about doing things that change us. In Jesus' commandment, there are no creedal statements. He says, love one another. He does not say, you must believe that my mother was ever virgin. You must believe the nature of the Trinity. You must believe that everything in Hebrew scriptures is inerrant and true and written exactly like it happened. 
He just says, love one another. In the church, among Christians, among religions, and with non-believers, there's often so much bickering about who is right and who is wrong. About what you must believe in order to be saved by Jesus. Or about the morality that you must follow in order to be one of Jesus' disciples. And often I think we spend so much time and energy focusing on all these issues of belief because the one thing that Jesus actually asked us to do is so hard. It's much easier to argue about human sexuality than it is to love one another. Much easier. But Jesus asked us, love one another. And note that at the end of the passage, there's a word about evangelism and spreading the good news to the disciples and therefore to us as well. He says, everyone will know that you are disciples if you have love for one another. He's saying to them and to us that people will see the truth of what you proclaim about me by your actions. The truth of your claims will be borne out by the character of your love, not by how clever your arguments are. Right? No one's ever been argued into believing in Jesus. And we are commanded by Jesus to love as Jesus loved, as I have loved you. So we are invited into a self-giving love, not just merely love on our own terms. So the question is not only, if you were on your deathbed, what advice would you give to your friends and family, but how does your very life bear witness to love and to the love of Jesus. How does your life bear witness to love one another? I learned this week that my 94-year-old grandmother uh, has gone into hospice care. And her, um, it's time for her to go. She wants to die. Her mind has gone, her body is failing her, and pretty much the only thing she's clear on is that she doesn't want to keep living. And so I've spent part of this week reflecting on my experiences of my grandmother and a trip that just the two of us took to visit my uncle in Canada and other encounters I've had uh, with her and reflecting on the gift of getting to celebrate her 94th birthday with her back in February. But I keep coming back to one sort of recurring memory. In the house I grew up in, all the bedrooms were up on the second floor. And the living room, which is where we kept the Christmas tree and all the gifts, was on the main floor. 
And we were not allowed to come downstairs to see our gifts until Grandma arrived. My parents' bedroom window looked out on the street. And so the first thing you would do Christmas morning is run and look out my parents' window and see if Grandma had arrived. And for whatever reason, I don't remember the details, one year she was later than the expected arrival time. And there we were, waiting at the top of the steps. Can't have Christmas until Grandma arrives. And again, I don't remember all the details, but all I know is that from after that Christmas, every single Christmas, she got there like an hour before anyone was going to wake up. <laughs> and I, she was like, damn it, I am never going to be late again. <laughs> and you would run, you'd, we were always the first up before our parents even, and run and look out the window in pitch black, and there her car would be in front of the house. She was just sitting in that car waiting for a light to come on in the house so she knew that she could come up. Now, that's a pretty simple story. It's not a profound story of somebody fighting for justice. It's not a profound story about uh, immense self-sacrifice for the sake of another human being. But for me, it's always been a really, really powerful story about being there for other people. That, that, That it meant a lot for her to be there, to just show up and to get there early and to know that she'd been sitting in that car for an hour waiting. That kind of witness, that kind of, I don't know how to describe it except that I experienced it as an act of love. On uh, Friday, I was uh, in a meeting at Ross School with the superintendent and some parishioners from St. John's uh, to discuss plans on working with the school and the town on a a joint community uh, rummage sale. And the superintendent of the school was accompanied by a young girl who I assume was in, I don't know, fourth or fifth grade. And uh, she was there because her parents had been on, I assume had bid at some auction on a supervisor for a day. So this girl was accompanying the supervisor because they had won being supervisor for a day. Now, I have to tell you, this girl did not look like she had won anything. (laughs) You were there. She did not look happy, did she? She's like, okay, so this is what being a supervisor is. You go to boring meetings all day long. In fact, she finally just left and went and sat in the supervisor's office. But that whole kind of following her around for a day, being, you know, superintendent, not supervisors, sorry, school superintendent for a day, kind of got me thinking about this gospel and the commandment to love one another. Jesus' commandment that is so focused on what we do, not just what we claim to believe. So I want to invite you to join me in a sort of um, superintendent for a week or Christian for a week experiment. 
I want to invite you to pretend for the next week that someone who knows absolutely nothing about the Christian faith or about Jesus gets to follow you around everywhere for a whole week. Maybe not everywhere, but follows you around for a week. Next Sunday, if they were here, what would they say about how Christians live and love?